0: You're listening to a DM podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the new series of Heroes and Howlers. It's me, Mikey Robbins, and my mate, Paul Wilson. Hi, everybody. Look, we're both still a couple of history tragics, but this season, it's not just us doing the heavy lifting. That's right, Mikey. This season, we've got special guests picking out their very own heroes.
1: And howlers. (laughs) Yeah, we're still on the lookout for those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously
0: changed the course of mankind. And we're still uncovering the cock-ups, those moments of madness... Have made the world what it is today but now we've got backup and together we'll be turning history back to front and back again
1: hey folks paulie here having a great time on season nine great having all these new guests on we're just going to have a break for a couple of weeks so we're going to go back and hopefully you'll enjoy some of our classic episodes from the past few seasons and then we'll be back with some new guests to
0: round out the year G'day, folks, and today we're going somewhere we haven't been before, and somewhere where I eventually want to end up. I'm talking about the seventh continent, Antarctica. Yes. So, Paul, are we talking about recent discoveries? Because I'm assuming it was only
1: recently discovered. Well, it was only recently discovered, Mikey, in terms of you know, humans first going there. But actually, it all goes back as far as the ancient Greeks in many ways, because they first suggested that there might be some sort of landmass down at the bottom of the globe, back in 350 BC. What? Right? Yeah, I know. So, because of course, back then, the Europeans, they would know about the Arctic. And in fact, the Greeks had given it the name Arcos, which means the bear, after the great bear, you know, the star constellation. Oh, the bear in the sky. That's right. So that was called Arcos. And then these same Greek mathematicians, they worked out that if you've got the Arctic at the top, you'd need some sort of southern. Land mass at the bottom of the globe to sort of act as a counterbalance. And so without going anywhere near it, in fact, without even crossing the equator, the ancient Greeks named it Antarchos, as in opposite of Arcos, Antarctic. You're
0: kidding me. You're <laughs> ki- I have made it to this age and only now I'm figuring out why it's called the Antarctic. Okay, Paulie, that's a good one. Thank you. But, but I mean, surely this was like a lucky guess or a calculated
1: guess? Like I said, the Europeans at that stage hadn't even been south of the equator. And it was actually another 2,000 years, Mikey, until one of our favourite old howlers, Captain Cook, came along. And in 1773, actually got as far as Antarctica. What do you say got as far? Did he Did he find land? Did he stick a flag in the ice? <laughs> no, for once he didn't do any flag sticking, but he did cross the Antarctic Circle. He did circumnavigate the whole area, but he did so without ever actually seeing land. Okay, Paul, if he doesn't actually see the land, how does he know there's land there? Well, on his voyage, while he's going around, he sees all these small rocks and boulders inside the icebergs that he's sailing past and that convinces him that there must be some sort of landmass from which the rocks can come. So those rocks had to come from somewhere so there must be land so did this make Cook happy? <laughs> well yes and no Mikey. He's very pleased that he's made such an important discovery but at the same time he is quite pessimistic and he actually writes down in his logs and this is a quote that although he'd found land the world would derive no benefit
0: From it, that's a bit harsh. But then again, like in terms of like Georgian British exploitation, there wasn't really a great deal for them there then. That's right. No, see, obviously it's it's barren ice then,
1: as it is mostly barren ice now. Look, as a continent, it may be twice the size of Australia, and it may be home to ninety percent of the Earth's total fresh water supply. But clearly, in terms of towns and cities, it's completely uninhabitable. But that doesn't mean it's just a boring wasteland, Mikey, because scientists since have found. In the interior, all these amazing blood-red waterfalls, volcanoes, ancient fossils... Hang um, on, you said blood-red waterfalls. What is that? Yeah, well, that's all the sediment and all the chemicals coming out from under the ground underneath, because obviously it is a continent. And as I said, you've got these volcanoes. They're dormant now, but at one stage they would have been live. You've got these ancient fossils. But in Cook's defence, it's also true that it's like the world's largest desert, right? Yes, that's right, Mike. It is almost entirely a technical desert because there is such little amount of snow and rain. But of course, because it's so cold, any precipitation that you do get, it doesn't melt, it doesn't disappear, it just builds up in thick, thick layers of ice. And in some areas, those layers of ice, Mikey, they get as much as four kilometers thick from top to bottom.
0: And that's why they'd be so handy for scientific research. That's right, Mikey, and you've also
1: got underneath these swathes of thick ice, you've got salty underground lakes, you've got huge mountain ranges, and of course, that's not even mentioning
0: all the incredible creatures like, you know, you got the penguins, the sea lions, seals. But no, despite what you may have seen in the Gary Larson cartoons, no polar bears. Right.
1: Okay, folks, so we're on our first ever episode on Antarctica,
0: the land of ice. Now, Paul, I just want to pick you on something. You said 90% of all the ice on Earth is in Antarctica. Yes. But we've still got frozen treats. Yeah, that's true. So before we go any further, I just want to give a quick shout out to all the other 10%. You see, up until refrigeration, most ice was harvested. I'm, I'm talking right up to the 20th century. We harvested ice from lakes, fjords, even rivers. But you mentioned the Greeks before. Mm. There are 41 mentions of ice in the Bible. Take your word for it. Yeah, but 40 of them mate, are meteorological. They talk about ice storms, which means hail. Oh, right. But there's one in the book of Job, mm. 38.22. Okay. Okay. Have you come into the secret place of snow, or have you seen the storehouses of ice drops? Storehouses. Yes, now this, they think, might be a reference to 5th to 4th century BCE Persian inventors. These guys came up with something known as the Yakchal. The Yakchal, right. Well, yak means ice, chal Mm -hmm. means pit. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's going to be scientific, so you know I'm (laughs) out of my depth here. There's a large, rounded cone-like buildings. A little bit like an upturned turnip, mate. Mm -hmm. And they're made out of sand, clay, even goat hair. I mean, anything that's really good at insulation. Mm -hmm. And they're incredibly good at retaining the cold night air. Mm. Because Let's not forget, you're in the desert, it gets very cold at night. Sure. And releasing the hot air through the top. Now, in the base of these buildings would be a pit. Right. And in that pit, there would be ice. And it would be so cold down there, the ice would stay frozen. Now, originally... This was harvested, so they bring down the ice in the winter and store them there throughout the year. Yep, but mate, over time, these yakchal became so efficient. They could even make ice. even In the the desert. In the the desert, mate. And this meant the Persians could actually store food around them and and keep it for months. Actually, Paul, you can still see some today. Now, I've never been to Iran, but I know you have. That's right, Mikey. You very
1: much can still see them today up on that Iranian plateau in the middle um, of the country where it is often at its hottest. And you've got two things there. You've got the canats, which is like the irrigation canals, bringing the cold water down from the the mountains for irrigation. But as you said, you go over the horizon and you see these little buildings popping <laughs> popping their heads up just outside small towns and villages. And they are those original yakchals that you've described. But it's not just storing
0: food they used the ice for is it Mikey? I'm so glad you asked that question Paul because around about the same time as they're building these yuck Charles, yeah. they reckon the cooks at the Persian royal court were crushing ice and covering that with fruit syrups, honey and even milk. Right, sort of slushy they, they were making upmarket slushies for the great courts of Persia, and of course centuries later when the Arabs invade, well they like a good slurpee as well, so they take over this technology and by the 8th century they've brought it to Sicily where ah. they, where they Call it a sherbet, a sha- oh sherbet. But it's not just that, Paulie. I've got something even better for you. There are some theories that we get the shape of the ice cream cone mm-hmm. from an inverted yakchal hut, upside down. Perfect. Okay, Paulie, getting back south, getting back to Antarctica. Now, I'm assuming we're going to talk about the heroic age of Arctic Antarctic exploration. And I'm just guessing, mate, (laughs) you've got a whole icebreaker full of heroes. Well, you'd
1: think so, wouldn't you, Mikey? And certainly the newspapers of the day would have you believe that this whole episode is chock full of heroes. But to be honest, Mikey, it's one of those occasions when you've just got to be a little bit wary of all the hype. But you see, the beginning of the 20th century, Mikey, it's the age of the newspaper scoop, isn't it? Yeah, together with the big front page splashes with all the photos from the newspapers newly invented cameras. So as with the expedition to the North Pole a few years previously, newspaper editors in America and Britain, they knew full well they had another gangbuster story on their hands if they can get there, one that would shift thousands of copies, dish up world exclusives. Ah, so it's sort of like early 20th century clickbait. <laughs> right. So when the attention of the explorers turned southwards, these same editors in the end, the Times, the New York Herald, they did everything they could to build up the key protagonists and stoke the accompanying rivals. And of course, the key race, the key discovery was not so much who got to Antarctica first or who found the most land, it was who could be the first to make it to the South Pole. And so, you know, to a certain extent, that's why the big names, Amundsen, Scott, Shackleton, that's why they've left such massive marks in history books and, of course, our collective psyche ever since. And look, don't get me wrong. What they did was heroic. It's a great achievements. You know, Roald Amundsen, he, you know, he was the first to get to the South Pole, December the 14th, 1911. You know, Robert Falcon Scott, yes, he made it to the South Pole to January the 17th, 19th, 12. But in
0: many ways, these expedition leaders, they weren't always quite what they were cracked up to be. Ah, so we're going to talk about why Scott was beaten. Is there some sort of twist in the story or, or a quirk of fate going on here, mate? <laughs> well, the first thing we have to say, Mikey, is that the real reason why
1: Norwegian Roald Amundsen was the first to get to the South Pole was because he actually had a clue what he was doing. You know, he'd done a lot of practice, he'd been up to the Arctic. Don't forget, he was the first man to sail through the Northwest Passage in Canada, so he was well prepared. He'd got his skis, he'd got his sleigh dogs, he he got all his animal fur clothing and he put together an A1 expedition properly prepared whereas Scott <laughs> Scott's whole plan from beginning to end was a bit of a cock up you know he took
0: ponies with him. Not a good idea, mate. <laughs> not, for, not compared to sleigh dogs. He had walking boots rather than skis. Now that sounds like a trivial thing, but it's not. Because obviously with skis you can ski, but also to walking boots, you've got leather soles on them, and the cold goes right up into your Straight feet. Straight up through exactly.
1: And it wasn't just the boots, Mikey. His clothing was essentially a trunk full of army surplus. This despite all the advice that Amundsen gave him that he should be wearing the animal fur skins that had proved so useful in the north. Yeah, In many ways, Mikey, there's a surprise Is not that Scott's expedition never made it home, is that he actually managed to plant
0: his flag in the South Pole at all? So, what you're saying is that Amundsen was always going to win. Like, he was the more experienced explorer. Mind you, I should point out at this point that later in life he actually does go missing and is never found. (laughs) That's right, but for the South Pole, his expedition certainly was more professional, wasn't
1: it, Mikey? Yeah, the only thing you can really say in Scott's favour is that perhaps Amundsen was a bit lucky in the fact that the route that he chose proved to be a lot smoother. Because, of course, before the two expeditions set out, and they set out from very different points, no one really had a clue what lay before them. So, hang on, they not only leave Shackleton now, who's pretty famous in Australia, What you're telling me Shackleton's a dud? Well, look, OK, he helped Scott, didn't he, on that first expedition. He was on board the Discovery. And, of course, Shackleton is the first person to lead a cross continent expedition that goes from one side of Antarctica to the other. But at the same time, Mikey, yeah, his preparations were a
0: little better, yeah, hence him <laughs> getting... OK, I can see where you're going with this, mate. Yes, he did have a few problems on the way home. <laughs> yeah, the old South Georgia saga. OK, folks, so that's a could try harder for Scott and Shackleton. Anybody else? Well, there is one other guy, actually, Mikey, a
1: guy I quite like. And this is a Japanese explorer, Shirase Nobu. A Japanese explorer? Okay, that's a new one on me. Right, but this Nobu guy, he was in the race too, and he's leading a seven-man team. Now, he knew from pretty early on that you could never actually win the real race, the race to the pole, but he wanted to show that Asian and Asian explorers could compete with their European
0: counterparts. Because, of course, actually, Paulie, now that you say it, that makes complete sense. I mean, you've got the northern part of Japan, which is covered in snow. It's it's near Siberia. it, It butts onto the Arctic Ocean. That's right. There's no reason why the Asians couldn't be involved in polar exploration,
1: too. So Nobu leads his expedition. Unfortunately, the first trip is not successful. He actually comes back to Australia, Mike. He spends the winter here preparing for his second voyage. And on this second trip, his ship is the first vessel to ever make landfall with the actual continent Of Antarctica, so that rather than just parking up against the ice and (laughs) and carrying on, he actually managed to navigate his ship and sail all the way through until he actually hit land on a peninsula which is now known as the Edward the Seventh Peninsula. The Edward VII Peninsula, so I'm assuming Nobu didn't get the naming right. No, unfortunately he didn't, and in fact he went on to find another great mountain range, which similarly ended up being named after Queen Alexandra, Edward VII's wife. So what happens to Nobu? Right, so as I said, he knew he wasn't going to win, so once the weather really turned on him, he retreats and he goes back and gets on his ship and calls time on the whole expedition. But the reason why I like him, Mikey, is that he financed the whole thing himself. He didn't want to be a burden on the state. He didn't want to be a burden on the taxpayer. So he took out loans for any of the extra money he needed. And I think it's all a little bit unfair because when he got back to Japan, there was very little adulation. He didn't get the fame and fortune um, that Amundsen got, for example. Yet he happily lived out his life in a very frugal way to ensure that he paid off and paid back every penny of those loans by the time he died in 1946. Not in
0: 46 you say, so at least he outlives both his rivals and he dies in his own bed. Okay, folks, and welcome back. We are talking about the Great Age of Exploration in Antarctica. But I've got a feeling, Paul, despite the look on your face, those names you've been throwing out so far, you've just been teasing us. (laughs) Well, that's it, because I've saved the best till last, Mikey.
1: It's a guy called Charles Wilkes, who's born in 1798. Never heard of him. Okay, well, I'll give you a few more clues. He was a naval officer. He was an American naval officer. He was very famous, went on to do great things in the American Civil War. But the reason why I want to speak about him today is because in January 1840, he was also the commander of the exploration expedition the U.S. sent to Antarctica. Mate, still never heard of him. And unfortunately, Mike, there's a good reason for that. Because although he goes on to achieve great things... His name doesn't go down in the history books. Okay, what great things? Oh, first up, he charts 1,500 miles of the East Antarctic coastline. Oh. He's in his flagship, the USS. Vincennes, and you've got to remember this is a small wooden boat. We're in the eighteen forties, and no one's really been down there since the
0: time of Captain Cook. Because you're talking eighteen forties, so between Captain Cook and this guy, the only people down there would be sealers and whalers who'd been blown off course. That's right, and yeah,
1: and they'd reported back that they'd seen some small rocky outcrops, but no one really knew what was down there. Would it be like a big open polar sea? Would it be a scattered archipelago? But by the time Wilkes is finished, with all his mapping, it's very, very clear that what we had on our hands was a whole continent. And he did all this by himself. Not quite by himself, Mikey. Now you see, 1840 was also the year the French thought they might have another sniff around down under and see if they could do their own spot of Antarctic discovery. In fact, by one of those many inexplicable quirks of fate history throws at us, on the very same day that Wilkes arrives... A French expedition led by the legendary Jules Dumont d'Urville has reached the Antarctic coast, the very same stretch
0: that Wilkes is on. So what? On the same day as Wilkes, he jumps off his ship and plants the French flag. Well, he plants the flag, yes, but then he gets back on his ship, turns round and sails back north. That's a bit of a French habit, isn't it, Paul? <laughs> Want to send a big cheerio to all our Sydney listeners living in La Perouse if you get mad
1: adrift? <laughs> yeah, well, Dervil turns back because he knows the weather is against him. But my man, Charles Wiltz, you know, against all the advice of his medical staff, all the other officers on board, he says, no, we're going to keep going. We're going to go round the continent. And we're going to brave all those howling catabatic winds to claim glory.
0: OK, I've got to you up on one thing here, mate. What the hell's a catabatic wind? <laughs> yeah, catabatic. I thought I might throw you with that one, Maggie. Yeah, <laughs> you
1: So catabatic wind are those incredible Icy winds that cut right through you, they come off the top of the plateaus of the icy mountains, they swoop down at a great pace and smash into anything that's parked offshore.
0: Cat Arbatic. Okay, mate, I'll remember that. But your man Rooks, he escapes unharmed? Correct. He successfully returns from his round the world
1: expedition, and in fact, the scientific collection he builds up on his voyages. That becomes the foundation for the fledgling Smithsonian Institute. So, Paulie, can I go back to my first question? How come I haven't heard of this guy? Well, the problem is, no sooner has he returned in Triumph, a British rival, a guy called James Clark Ross, who you probably do... He discovered the magnetic North Pole? That's right, yeah. He's already been up in the Arctic. He's made some great discoveries. And he sets out to steal Wilkes' thunder. And the problem is my man Charles actually helps him. He sends Ross a copy of all his charts that he's made of the East Antarctic coast so that when Ross's expedition gets down there, he's able to retrace Wilkes's routes and make a few minor adjustments on the maps of his own. Because to be fair, you know, Wilkes had <laughs> he'd mistaken a few ice shells for the coastline and he'd managed to draw some of the inlets and peninsulas a little bit too far north.
0: Oh, poly, poly, poly. I'm no map expert, trust me, but that's not much of a crime, is it? No, it's not, but to listen to Ross and the British Admiralty at the time, you would
1: think it's catastrophic. In fact, Ross and the British Admiralty, they build up a case to dismiss all of Charles Wilkes' claims to discovery and snatch all the glory for themselves. And unfortunately, Mikey, it works because if you look at any 19th century maps of Antarctica from this period or any time over the next 50, 60 years, there is no mention of Wilkes. <laughs> and you'll be very pleased to
0: know, Mikey, I brought one in today to okay. show you
1: just to prove my point.
0: Okay, Paulie, I'm looking at your map right now. Yeah, it says 1849, I now, I can't see any mention of Wilkes, but I do see the Ross Sea. That's right. So Ross gets
1: his name on there. He gets the Ross Sea, but there's no mention of Wilkes. And even back in the USA, Mikey, <laughs> and this one might surprise you, there's no one to champion his cause either. In fact, when he dies, his obituaries in the US newspapers, sure, they highlight his role in the Civil War, but there's hardly a passing mention
0: to any of his polar discoveries. OK, Paul, I can't believe I'm this, And even if it means breaking out another map, please tell me there's a happy ending. Yes, yeah, so you'd be very glad to hear there is. Because
1: in the 20th century, my man Wilkes finally gets his dues. And it's all down to an Australian explorer, actually, Mikey, a guy called Douglas Mawson. Ah, oh, the bloke that built the huts. We all learned about him at school. <laughs> right. Well, in 1912, 1913, he leads his big expedition. And that's actually the first expedition to revisit these East Antarctic shores. And he so admires Wilkes' original maps and his powers of navigation, because of course Wilkes had been sailing through this ice pack in a wooden sail ship. So in Wilkes's honour, this man Mawson orders that the entire Antarctic East Coast should be christened Wilkes Land. <laughs> and you'll be very pleased, Mikey, I've got a second map for you here from the 20th century, and you can see Wilkes's land over on this side. That's actually quite a big whack of land, mate. In fact, Mikey, it's the largest continuous territory on Earth ever to be named after a single individual. Any questions, any comments, just drop us a line on all your social media Twitter, Facebook,
0: Insta, whichever you prefer. That's right, and always the same handle, at the rest is hist. The rest is hissed, and you'll find all that in the show notes. And wherever you're listening, don't forget to like, subscribe, comment on whichever platform you happen to use. It's always good to get your feedback. Yes, keep it all coming, lots of fun. And lots of mess <laughs> And lots of new guests to look forward to. All in, we've got guests Galore, each with their very own hero and howler.